Let's be honest. That, you know, a lot of times Labor Day weekend is the weekend for R&R or to have one last hurrah for uh, summer. And on top of it, you woke up this morning and saw the rain and you said, I'm still going to church. So I uh, highly commend you guys. You know that there is a special place in the kingdom for Labor Day attenders at church. But the next couple of weeks is going to look a little bit different. We are in the book of Joshua, but uh, for those of you that know the book of Joshua, we know that this is where we step into a different portion of the book where we start dividing up the land. And so we're going to take a little bit more of an aerial ascent when it comes to uh, this book um, over these next handful of chapters. I, I talked to a pilot friend of mine uh, last week and I said, hey man, what uh, is the altitude that you would fly at if you're just kind of going on a sightseeing flight? So you could just kind of still see what's going on down there, maybe circle back for a second look. And he said about four to 5,000 uh, feet altitude. And I, I said, well, that's probably where we're going to be cruising at over these next few weeks uh, through uh, the book of Joshua. And, um, you know, not at 30,000 feet where we can't see anything and not at the place that we normally arrive at, which is as if we were walking through on the land and just kind of uncovering every rock and uh, doing some digging to really try to find some of those precious jewels in, in Scripture or to, you know, take a deep dive into a pool and try to find these treasured pearls. And so that's usually kind of where we hang out at, but just trying to squeeze every last aspect out of the passages that we uh, review. But again, uh, we're going to be kind of having an overview approach. And let's be honest, the book of Joshua is very front-loaded. It's also very rear-loaded. So front-loaded meaning that uh, we see so many dramatic events take place. We saw Joshua to being charged to be strong and courageous. We saw the story of Rahab. The Israelites crossed over the Jordan River on dry ground. After that, uh, Joshua was visited by the commander of the Lord's army. They went and attacked the city of Jericho, and the walls of Jericho uh, fell down right before them. And then, then after that, the, because of the sins of Achan, they stepped into attacking the city of Ai, but they were actually the only defeat that we have a record of. But they rallied and then retook the city of Ai. And then from here, they were deceived by the Gibeonites. And so this resulted in the Israelites forming a covenant with the Gibeonites. And then after that, as we heard from Travis last week, we, we saw the Amorite kings attack them. And as a result, uh, the Lord sent down hailstone from heaven. And then also he answered Joshua's prayer of allowing the sun to stand still. And so through each of these very dramatic, large events through the book of Joshua, we have been able to extrapolate these rich, uh, majestic truths out of Scripture that are, are so important as far as practical implications for our own lives in Christ. And, and so it's been an amazing journey. And if we were to look to the end of Joshua, we also see uh, these very profound charges that Joshua gives the people of Israel. And as a result, will give us as well. But in between here, we see this large expanse. And so today, we're kind of finishing up the lands that were conquered by the Israelites. And then we step into dividing up the promised land amongst the tribes of Israel. And now, for some, you might stay up late at night and uh, spend hours upon end studying your family's genealogy. 
Or, or maybe you just love to just look at topographical maps and lot lines and, uh, you know, spend a lot of time on Google Maps, and, and that's great. But I would probably say for a healthy majority, um, that might not be your thing, okay? And so we're going to give a general overview of some of these chapters and also compiled with the fact that, as we know, we've had some air conditioning issues here in the auditorium and uh, compiled with the fact that sometimes we've got some white noise with some fans going. And I could literally just lull you all to sleep by just reading Hebrew name after Hebrew name after Hebrew name and Hebrew city after Hebrew city after Hebrew city. And, uh, you know, that's okay. And then also the fact that I'm only 20% Jewish. And so that means you're probably only going to get 20% of a Jewish accent when I have to recite all of these Hebrew names. And so it's, uh, you know, there's an English version and a Hebrew version. You'll probably find us somewhere in between those two. Uh, But our approach, again, it's going to be over these next handful of chapters, just kind of cruising through at a four to 5,000 foot altitude. And another analogy would be this. How many of you guys like a good road trip, right? I mean, like, come on, let me see a good road trip. Nothing like a good road trip, am I right? I mean, we're, we've got some good company. I mean, it could be a bad road trip if you don't have good company, right? So you could have good company. You've got the right tunes, maybe some podcasts these days. You've got a perfect destination, the place that you're going to stop and eat at. I mean, that's a big deal when it comes to road trips, but there's nothing like a good road trip. And I would just maybe just use the example. We're going to be going on a road trip and periodically we're going to be taking some stops and checking out the scenic overlooks. And so, uh, but with that being said, um, with all this talk about flybys and scenery, I think this would be a perfect time to bust out a map. We haven't done that yet through the book of Joshua, right? And so thank you, Brian, for, you know, conjuring up all these things. And uh, as far as the maps are concerned, he is a multifaceted individual. But thanks, Brian, for getting those. But we haven't really taken the time to talk about uh, where we've been and uh, where we're going. And as far as um, these lands that we've spent so much time talking about. And so, and yes... I have a laser pointer. And so we decided to go with uh, Jedi green instead of uh, Sith red here. So, and we'll see how much caffeine John has had by how bad the laser pointer shakes. So we're going to start and just maybe give an overview of as far as where we've been. If we recall that the Israelites started on the east side of the Jordan River at Shittim. And they crossed over the Jordan River and they set up camp at Gilgal. And then after they spent some time at Gilgal. The first fortified outpost city that they encountered was none other than Jericho. And this is where the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. And then uh, from here, they went and tried to attack the city of Ai. But as we know, uh, the sins of Achan uh, resulted in them being defeated. 36 Israelites uh, were killed. And then, but they figured all that out. And then they reestablished themselves, rallied, attacked I. And then what we see from here, they went up to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And this is significant because they were told to do this in the book of Deuteronomy, that they were told when they enter into the promised land that you are to go it, it, to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and, and recite 
the, the promises, the blessings, and the curses of the Mosaic law. And so that's what they did. And this served as somewhat of a spiritual revival for the people of Israel, a mountaintop moment, so to speak, at these mountains of Mount Ebal and uh, Ebal in Gerizim. And so from here, they went back and then went back to base camp at Gilgal. And then from here, what took place is that they were deceived by the Gibeonites. They were deceived by the Gibeonites. They made a covenant with the Gibeonites, which had some reciprocity involved, meaning that um, they would not attack the Gibeonites. In, in addition, if the Gibeonites were attacked, they would recognize them as their own people and would come to their aid. And so we're going to review a little bit of last week's message in chapter 10 as we see this, because what took place at this point that, that the, um, the city of Gibeon and their corresponding cities were indeed attacked by these five Amorite kings. And these five Amorite kings attacked them, and then the people of Gibeon petitioned to Joshua and because they were under attack and said this from chapter 10, verse 6, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. And so what was Joshua's response at this point? Well, he said, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And as we know from last week, the Lord sends these hailstones from heaven to kill the Amorites. And he hears Joshua's prayer, the sun stands still and all the Amorites are defeated. And they're not only defeated, but Joshua takes the time to just with this dramatic, um, dominant, grisly decisiveness, he, he takes these five Amorite kings and he kills them and puts them on display and puts them in a cave to strike fear into the hearts of their enemies. And, and so what does Joshua proceed to do at this point? Well, he doesn't stop. He, he goes after all of these cities that came against them, and many of them had a, appointed new kings in the, the meantime, and he pursues uh, these cities, these city-states in the southern portion of Canaan. And, and so this is where we see this southern campaign. And so uh, we could see this is where they were at Gibeon, or Gibeon, and then they go to Azekah, and then they go to um, Makeda, and Livna, and Lachish, and Eglon, and Hebron, and Devir. And so they, he just proceeds to make his way through all of these things, these city-states, conquering them in, in complete desolation. And, and so, and then after they are finished here, they make their way back up to Gilgal. And so this is the southern campaign. This is where Joshua conquested southern Canaan. And so now as a result of this, as a result of what had taken place with this uh, complete obliteration, absolute and total obliteration of the Lord, what takes place here is all of the kings and kingdoms from the northern aspect of the promised land, they recognize this, they hear of this, and their response is that they establish this super army 
coalition. I mean, we're talking an army that has never been seen before. They bring all of these kings and kingdoms and city-states uh, together and form this uh, super army. And this is where we're going to pick up, if you have your Bibles, this is where we're going to pick up in Joshua chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 5. And so it says this, when Javan, king of Hatsor, heard of this, he sent to Jovav, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron, and to the king of Achsba, and to the kings who were in the northern country, and in Arabah, south of Kinnerat, and in the lowland, and in Nephoth, Dor, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Harmon in the land of Mitzpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in numbers like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And so we could see, again, with one more map here, we could see what had taken place, all of these people groups, all the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, all of these cities as well that consisted of these individuals as well. They all made their way up here and congregated with this massive super army at the waters of Merom. And so this is where they resided. Now, when many would think, well, Joshua would just kind of wait down here at Gilgal and wait for the super army to attack because this would be, uh, you know, they would have travel, they would be weary, they would have to go through supplies, but that's not what Joshua does. Instead, he comes all the way up from Gilgal and attacks them in their own place where this entire army has congregated. Now, we know from Josephus, who is a first century historian, he obviously wasn't around during this time, but he guesstimated and he speculated that this super army consisted of 300,000 foot soldiers and it consisted of 20,000 chariots, 10,000 horsemen, the, the largest, most formidable army that Joshua and the Israelites had ever faced leading up to this. And so this leads us to our first point because we see the same steadfast obedience of Joshua. And once again, once again, we see the theme of Joshua's obedience, Joshua's obedience leading to the Lord's faithfulness. Now, the Lord is not dependent on Joshua's obedience. He stands alone. He is not, you know, it is not predicated as far as how he responds according to what Joshua does or doesn't do. But we do see time and time again throughout the book of Joshua that the Lord blesses because of Joshua's steadfast obedience. And I think it's very important to identify the fact that Joshua was not a robot. He was not this robot of obedience that anytime the Lord asked him to do something that he was just like, sure, God, you've got it. Make no mistake, Joshua went through extensive fear and trepidation through any of these situations. We know this for a fact because time and time again, we see the Lord tell Joshua to not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Joshua, when he was charged with these extraordinary things to do, uh, to have to step into, he never wavered. He, he never questioned. He never cowered away. But what Joshua always did with steadfast obedience, 
He, he obeyed. He stood firm. And he trusted. He trusted in what the Lord was telling him to do was the Lord's plan. And every time he stepped into it. And so what's the outcome here? Again, with Joshua stepping into the largest army he had ever faced. And we see this in verse 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them. Slain to Israel, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom, and he fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Sidon and Misrephoth Maya, eastward, Mayan, eastward as far as the valley of Mitzpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them, just as the Lord said to him, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now, this is going to be our first scenic overlook here. Now, it's not necessarily a scenic overlook. It's if you stopped and maybe overlooked a charred forest, so to speak. And I don't want to hear any complaints from PETA people, okay, which actually stands for people eating tasty animals, okay? That's a bad joke, bad joke. People for the ethical treatment of animals. I love animals, okay? I got a dog. He's a big part of our lives. My mom took me horseback riding, which is kind of funny, when I was a kid. So it has nothing to do with this. I'm just, you know, pulling out the word of God. But we're a good way to look at this, what does it mean when they hamstrung their horses? Or, or more importantly, why did the Lord have this in his word? Why is it important to make mention of this? Well, I think a, a good place to start would be to look at our own hamstring, right? We all know where that is, and obviously it, it consists of the semi-tendinosis, the semi-membranosis, and the long and short head of the biceps femoris, right? And so you, got, you guys knew that was coming. You could take the guy out of PT, but you can't take the PT out of the guy. But um, Jim, you're here. I mentioned you, you and I uh, first service, but um, we both, within about three weeks of each other, pulled a hammy. And we all know what it's like to pull a hammy for those of us that have done it or been around someone that have done it. And the thing is, they're both at church-related events, which I find to be very odd. Uh, but pulling a hamstring is very painful, number one. And number two, when you pull a hamstring, there's no more running, okay? <laughs> your, your running is done, okay? However, you could still walk pretty effectively. And so what Joshua was told to do here to hamstring the horses while what took place, it would render the horses ineffective. They could still be farm animals, but they would no longer be war animals. And so that was the, the impetus behind Joshua being told to hamstring these horses, that they would not be used in, in war anymore. And, and what was the purpose behind this? Well, this is twofold, and I would say, the first reason is because the Israelites were not yet equipped to be using such a fortified weapon of destruction. And this is exactly what a horse and chariot was during this time. We could have a, a picture of a Hivite war horse up here. And so this is a fortified weapon of destruction at that day and age. I mean, like, look at that guy. The guy at the bottom there, he's not doing so good. And so, but if you... If you have these things, what, those of you guys that have some military background or knowledge, well, if you have weaponry that you are not adept at using, well, what do you typically do with that? Well, 
you destroy it. You destroy it because if you were to be once again overtaken and they would be able to once again use that weaponry against you. And, and so this is why they hamstrung the horses to render these horses ineffective as war horses and chariot wielding horses to one day come against them. But more importantly, I would say this, the reason that the Lord told Joshua to hamstring the horses and to burn the chariots is this. The constant reminder that we see throughout the book of Joshua, that we see all throughout Scripture, the place that we need to begin and end at in our lives in Christ, is that it is always going to be, it is always to be the Lord, the Lord leading us into battle. It was not the Israelites' military prowess, their tactical intuition, the sheer might of having thousands upon thousands of horses and chariots. It was always the Lord leading them into battle. It was them and Joshua and should be us as well leaning into the Lord's strength in all the battles that we face. And so that's point number two. We're to fight our battles in the Lord's strength and not our own. That's our theme for the whole book of Joshua. It's not only in Ephesians 6, but it is the theme all throughout the book of Joshua to be strong in the Lord. So often we, we try to manipulate the situation, dictate the narrative, just control the outcome, set up our own horses and chariots, the things that we just find security in. In fact, that's not where it's supposed to be. The more we step into self-reliance, the more we step into control, I think we've all arrived at the place when we try to do all these things, the more we realize how little control we actually have. And I'm not saying don't step into much-needed prayer. Don't step into you know, careful planning, don't step into uh, just uh, all the due diligence that we should arrive at, just as we talked about a few weeks ago when coming upon these big decisions in our life. But make no mistake, the place that we so desperately, desperately need to find ourselves at is on our knees, recognizing that you, Lord, are God and in control, not ourselves, leaning into the strength of his might, we need to stop fighting the battles on our own. We could so easily just jettison off into these things and then forget to say, wow, this is the Lord's battle to fight. He needs to be leading the way. We need to be yielding to him as an obedient general according to what his plans are for our life. We need to stop fighting the battle on our own. We need to effectively burn the chariots. Burn the chariots in our life that we so tightly grasp onto for security, recognizing that, Lord, you, you are all I need. It is the Lord that is supposed to be leading us into battle. Exodus 15, 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Psalm 27, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we, as followers of Jesus Christ, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Proverbs 21, 31, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory, the battle, belongs to the Lord. In Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, not by, nor by power, but by my spirit. By my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. 
it's so easy to forget that we are able to tap in to the omnipotent power of Lord God creator of the universe is working on our behalf. And it's not by my own strength. It's not by my own power. It's not by my own horses or chariots. It's not by my own self-reliance in which the Lord is to be working through our lives. It is always to be the Lord leading us into battle and us following in line behind him. The battle truly belongs to the Lord. It was and is and always should be the place that we find ourselves at as followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, you are in control. You are going before us. You are fighting this battle. So again, what do we see? This massive super army that congregates with all their military might. What takes place? They're defeated at the waters of Merom, and they're given over to the Israelites as we see in verse 8. And then we see, once again, Joshua going on the offensive. He just doesn't sit back and wait for the battle to come to him. He, he goes and attacks Hatsor, Goshen, Arabah, and the Hivites. Uh, and the Hivites of Gibeon are protected during that time. And so this is very important because we could see that, again, Joshua was charged to do this, and he did exactly what he was told to do. He followed it all the way through. And the, we're going to take another quick scenic overlook here as we look to verses 21 and 22 that I thought were of great significance as it relates to later chapters in uh, God's word where it states this, and Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Devir, and from Anav, and from all the hill country of Judah, and, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. And there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people in Israel, of Israel. But it states this, only in Azar, or Gaza, and in Gath, and Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. And the reason I thought it was of significance to bring this up, because this um, allowance of these Anakim to remain alive, it, it proved to be problematic for the Israelites at a later date. Now, what do we mean by this? If you recall, when the 12 spies went out to assess the, the promised land, the, the land of Canaan, they came back and what they say, there are giants in the land. And, and there are individuals that if we went up against, we would be like grasshoppers. And this is the report that started the whole revolt. And so, uh, but Joshua and Caleb stood alone and said, we've got to do this. We have to do what the Lord has called us to. And so, but they came back and these Anakim, Anakim, these were these giant individuals. And so if we see this passage, they were left in Gaza, Ashdod, and the city of Gath. And if we recall, there is a particular Philistine that gave the people of Israelite a great deal of trouble in 1 Samuel 17, and that would be none other than Goliath, who is from none other than Gath. And so an Anakim from Gath was Goliath. And so I thought that was kind of significant when going through uh, the study. But this is kind of the conclusion of chapter 11. And so we're going to puddle jump, uh, get back in the Cessna. We're going to get back in the car and cruise on over to chapter 12. And if we look at chapter 12, it basically is just a big summary of the 33 kings defeated by Moses 
and Joshua. And we see two kings defeated by Moses and 31 kings defeated by Joshua. And now, don't be, um, I mean, it's, it is kind of a number thing, and, but it is, isn't in some ways because these lands of, that were defeated by Moses, even with Joshua as the general, were very significant. They were expansive empires of Sihon and Og. And we could see that in this chapter, in addition, they're referenced by Rahab and the Gibeonites. And so these two lands of Sihon and Og were thought to be unbeatable. So it was very significant, even though we have two verses 31. But then we see 31 kings defeated by Joshua. And this is very significant, and I think, you know, the, Joshua wanted to make it clear that it was so many of them that he rattles it off, and it says, by one, by one, by one. He wanted to make sure that we could have this expansive overview of all of the city-states, of all the kings and kingdoms that were defeated by Joshua. And why are these things in here? And I would say this. When we look at something such as this, when we see just ticked off one by one as far as all of these kings and kingdoms defeated by Joshua, what is the purpose of that? And I would say that it serves as an example, as a testament of the Lord's judgment on the wicked. The Lord's judgment on the wicked. If we were to look to Psalm 145.20, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all, all the wicked he will destroy. The Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he reigns over all. Make no mistake, all of the wicked, all of his enemies will be struck down, whether in this life or ultimately at the final day of judgment. And here in this case, the wickedness, the transgressions, the iniquities of the Amorites had finally reached the brim, the threshold of their worship of false gods, child sacrifices to the god Moloch, egregious sexual immorality. It had all run its course. If we recall hundreds of years beforehand in Genesis 15, 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. But now what we see here, the iniquity, the sins, the transgressions, the wickedness of the Amorites is now complete. It is now complete and now there's no more time left. They had hardened their hearts towards God. And as we see in verse 11, 20, God finished hardening their hearts. The time for them to turn away from their wicked ways had now passed. And this is our third point, real feel-good point here. The enemies of the Lord will not go unpunished. They will not go unpunished. And the judgment that came, came through Joshua. Joshua went through each and every one of these lands and he completely obliterated them through the Lord God. And so this is important because oftentimes we lose some of that perspective in this life. It's inevitable. We're always going to be pulled down this current and then sometimes what the Word of God, it repositions us to give us a good perspective that maybe we don't think about all the time, but it's important that we land here periodically. And, and what is that? That God is just. God is holy. He will eradicate all wickedness. He will bring about judgment and one day do away with it all for all those who are not under the covering of His Son, Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we look at this chapter as we've said before. We say, wow, I can't believe that 
the Lord would just wipe out an entire people group like that. Or, or to say, I don't want to follow a God that allows such destruction in this world. But where we need to land in the perspective that we often need to be reminded of is this. We have such a finite, limited knowledge of how, why, or through what manners the Lord is bringing about his judgment. We have to recognize that God is God. He is sovereign over all. All of these things take place according to his perfect governance. And for us, we need to be reminded for ourselves and for those around us, we want to make sure that we're on the right side of that equation through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is what passages like this are meant to do. A reminder that God is love, but God is also a God of judgment who will judge the wicked. We need to be reminded of who God is. We need to not play around with our life in Christ. And I think another takeaway when we look at this overview of chapter 12 is this. Oftentimes, it's a very good thing that we pause, that we take time to remember and write down and memorialize, which has been such a prevalent theme of this book of Joshua, all the battles the Lord has won, right? We so easily forget. And what this chapter serves as is it serves as a memoriam to give testimony of how the powerful hand of God swept through, through Joshua, through Moses, and delivered the people of Israel into the promised land. Joshua 1.3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon Joshua, I have given you, just as I promised Moses. Later in verse 5 it says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Joshua was obedient and the Lord delivered. And we see this chapter 12, these lists of names that were defeated by Joshua. And he takes the time to write them down. And so often we need to do that. Because some of us that have walked these lands for maybe more than a few decades, we know we've been able to look back and see how God has brought us through so many battles. Yeah, there's lots of scars, there's lots of difficult times, but we have been able to look back. We could look back and see the hand of God working through our lives, delivering us through battle after battle after battle. And I'm not saying there's not going to be more battles. I'm not saying that there isn't going to be more uphill battles in our life, but I am saying this. We need to take the time to memorialize what the Lord has brought us through. Because the Lord needs you to remember, and he needs you to speak those battles that the Lord has been victorious over so you can be an inspiration to others. The Lord was faithful for me then, and I know he is going to be faithful for you right now in the battle that you're facing. And maybe for some that are younger, may this just serve as inspiration for you to know that there will be battles ahead. Make no mistake, there's going to be some uphill battles. 
There's going to be things that you have to endure that right now you're like saying, I can't even fathom going through that. Yes, there will be times where the Lord delivers in dramatic fashion where you cross over the Jordan River on dry ground when the walls of Jericho come falling down. There are going to be times when he is deserving of all the praise, all the majesty, all the glory. There will be times of victory. There will be times of peace. There will be times of respite. But there will also be times in all of our lives, young, old, much life to live, maybe not as much life to live, there will be times in our lives where the battle rages on. Where the battle continues. The battle continues on this side of eternity. Verse 18 states this, Joshua made war a long time. A long time with all of those kings. There's going to be battles that we have to face. There's going to be things that we have to lean into the strength and might of the Lord. There's going to be times in our life where the devil seeks to ensnare, entrap, cause us to stumble, cause us to take us out of our life in Christ. But just as we saw Joshua, just as he did to the Amorite kings, when it comes to what the devil has for us and the sins that he seeks to entrap us with, what are we to do? We're to say no. I'm going to take that sin. I'm going to put my foot on its neck. I'm going to hang those corpses out to dry. And after all is said and done, I'm going to take that and put it in a cave never to return. But there will be things that we have to fight against all the way until we see the Lord. And what do we need to do? You and I, we need to stay in the fight. Christian, we need to stay in the fight. What are we told by the Apostle Paul in Philippians when he's talking about knowing Christ, sharing in his suffering, being more like him? He says these words, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect or being perfected, but I press on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. I press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. May we be followers of Christ that press on. Regardless of the battle, may we be followers of Jesus and say, Lord, this is your battle to fight. When the devil seeks to raise up rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, our responsibility is to obey. Our responsibility is to fight the good, run the race to keep the faith and to press on, press on towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, just as Paul did, just as Joshua did time and time again. May we be followers of Jesus that press on, that lean strength of his might, fully devoted to him, that recognize that he is God and this is his battle to fight. Every time this large battle loomed before Joshua, every time he was fearful of the outcome, he leaned into the Lord's might. He was obedient to what he said. And maybe the outcomes won't be favorable. Maybe the outcomes that we see and look through a clouded lens, not having the full picture until we get to heaven. Maybe it's not 
always going to work out the way that we thought, but we know this, that the Lord is victorious. God will be victorious in the end. And this picture of chapter 12 is basically showing us how the Lord will vanquish all of his foes. And this brings us to our final point. Our life, our life will be full of battles. Some will be short, some will be drawn out. Some we may be victorious over and with some we may not see the outcome on this side of eternity. But take heart. Take heart. Because in the end, God wins. We're on the winning side of the equation. We're on the winning team. And as we prepare for communion in our hearts, I would just challenge us all. What is this battle? And I'm not saying you haven't leaned into the Lord, but I'm asking, can you lean into the Lord a little bit more? Or maybe it's a that you've been trying to fight on your own, and the Lord has made it abundantly clear that this is not a battle that you fight. This is not a battle that you are to rest on your chariots and horses. This battle belongs to the Lord, and you are to lean into Him at this time, maybe for the first time, or maybe even more so. It's always at the place that the, God, that the Lord wants us to start and finish at, leaning into the strength of his might. So I would just encourage us, what is that thing in your life right now? What is that battle that you've just been trying to do it all alone? What is that battle that you've forgotten that the almighty God of the universe is with you? Do not be afraid. I am with you. So let's take some time thinking of that. The victory you've been looking for may just be right around the corner. And maybe right now today, the Lord is calling you to burn the chariot. Burn the chariot. So ushers, you could come out. Come up, Ralphie, you could go ahead and come on out. And as Ralphie plays, I just want you to spend some time saying, Lord, I've been trying to do this on my own. I've forgotten. Maybe I haven't leaned into you the way that I need to. Maybe I haven't leaned into you at all. But no, that's exactly the place that the Lord wants you to be at. To say, God, you are in control. And I will be a faithful, obedient general of the Lord's army to follow through in exactly what you've asked me to do. So I just encourage us to take this time to pray, lean into the strength of his might, and ask and answer the question of what is that, Lord? I'll come back up and we'll take communion together. Thank you.
when he had given thanks, he took the bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body. Do so in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant. In my blood, do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Shall we partake? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we're thankful for allowing us to step into these truths found in your word. And God, we pray that it does not just start and finish here on a Sunday morning, but Lord, that we would consider these things not only within this next week, this next month, this next year, but for the rest of our lives. God, may we be a people that understand that we are under your jurisdiction, your umbrella, that we have one place to go, and that's to you. God, our hearts are prone to wander. God, we so easily can rely on our own horses, our own chariots, the things and the talents and the possessions and what have you. But Lord, may we fully embrace that you are God. And you ask us to continually yield to your will. Your kingdom come, your will be done. God, we just ask that we would just be a people that regularly do that, that lean into the strength of your might. God, that when we know the path that we are to take, that we would not hesitate to burn our chariots. God, you and your purpose is to will and work in our lives to your glory, and may our lives be a fresh aroma to you, Lord, in all that we do. May we know and recognize that these battles that we face, we don't face them alone. You are with us. You are with us. And may we be reminded of that in our times of weakness, that this battle belongs to you. And God, may we allow this song to be a rich anthem just crying that out in our hearts to say, Lord, this is your battle to fight. We will stand firm as an obedient general, just as Joshua did. But Lord, we know that you are always leading the way. And we ask these things 